Welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm an economist and a writer and the mother of two girls. Today's show features a guest that can give us some perspective on the current climate around two important topics, abortion and postpartum depression. She's a psychiatric nurse practitioner who experienced an abortion in the 1970s and peripartum and postpartum depression in the 1990s. She's written about her experience in a piece titled No Stranger. Here are some excerpts from her writing. First, she writes, How do you know? The patient might ask. I lean forward a bit in my office chair, a magic mix of science and empathy, or so I'd like to think. The woman sitting across from me may be dabbing at her eyes with her fingers. If her nails are chewed to bloody shreds, I will fold my own more tightly on my lap. I've been a nurse practitioner for a long time, I will say. More women than you think go through this. It's hormonal. And a little later in the piece, she writes, Early on, I figured that postpartum depression was a risk for me, but expected I could balance my emotional happiness and stability against my physiological tendency towards clinical depression, if I was ever so lucky as to get pregnant. And besides, I was a professional with training and resources. So here's the thing with training and resources. Depression robs you of the clarity to use any of those skills or supports. One note to add, I'm gonna change the format of the show a little, sharing people's stories in more manageable pieces. So you'll hear the front half of the story right now and the back half next Friday. And with that, we'll get to the story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from? Oh, my name is Nina Gaby, long I, long A. I am originally from Rochester, New York, and oh, wow. I now live in central Vermont. Oh, wow. Nice. Wow. Is that cold for colder? Is that the trade? Cold for colder. <laughs> we came to Vermont like on a, on an adventure. Uh, nice. Vermont's nice. So do, will you define your profession? So I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner and clinical nurse specialist. And, you know, some of your listeners may know that entails being an RN and then becoming an advanced practice RN with additional clinical experience and a master's degree. And, and many are getting doctorates now to become nurse practitioners. And it's a state-by-state state kind of certification. So in the state of Vermont, I have prescriptive authority so I can prescribe medications. I diagnose people, evaluate them, give them complete workups, psychiatric workups, and then I, I prescribe medications and then I follow them. And I do psychotherapy when time allows. Okay. Okay. So that's a, that's a pretty broad specialty. And I imagine you've seen a lot of things in, in no small part because of the writing that you sent me, which we will get to. Because I have read your piece called No Stranger, I know more than I do going into most interviews. So why don't you tell us about the first pregnancy first, just to kind of set the stage. The first pregnancy was in 1974, and it was an unwanted pregnancy. And I forever will be so thankful to Roe v. Wade. It allowed me to go on with my life. I would not have been able to have been a good mother. At that time, I was in a relationship that it had been an international love affair. Once we were speaking the same language, it it wasn't working out well at all. 
I had just graduated with my first degree, which was a bachelor's in fine art. And I had already set up a studio and I already, not even out of college, had orders for galleries from, again, I was very fortunate, from Hawaii to Cape Cod, fine, fine craft galleries. So I was just on the precipice of my life. And despite significant birth control, I found myself pregnant in a relationship that I could not handle. I was drinking heavily and there was no way I could have been a mom then. Yeah, I so thought I, I was looking through your piece. I thought I saw you said two forms of birth control or something like that. Yeah, I had. Do you remember? Do you remember the old Dalcon Shield? I, you know, that's before my time. So I, I've heard of it, but I don't know how it works. Ooh, it looks like a, a like a little bit like a scorpion with lots of legs coming off of it. It is a an evil looking thing. It hurt like hell all the time, and. I, I didn't want to get pregnant. I mean, I knew, I thought I knew what I was doing. So we used, you know, man, condoms and we were so incredibly careful and nonetheless, you know, pregnancy happens yeah. and no matter how careful we are. And so, yeah, so that was the first pregnancy. And then the second pregnancy. Wait, so let was, me, before you, before you get to the second one, you say, can I quote your piece? Is that right? Sure. Yeah. You say, I recall now my preoccupation with how, how maybe because I'd had an abortion at 23, I would never be allowed by the powers of the universe to ever get pregnant again. This is not normally the way I think. And finding it crazy, I mentioned it to no one. Right. I think, but I think a lot of people do carry that with them. I also think that people don't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I think we would have to. So when I was thinking that way, I was in, you know, kind of the throes of depression leading up to the pregnancy. I was was already depressed because I was turning 40 and I wanted to have a baby. And now I was, I was so stable. Now I was sober for, um, I had been sober since I was 29 years old. I had a a wonderful, solid relationship, a really solid marriage. I had a career, a career that being an artist was a wonderful career, but moving into healthcare was significantly more stabilizing. So I had decided I wanted to have a baby because I could be a great mom. Yeah and provide for that baby. And it was a whole different thing. And then I wasn't getting pregnant. And prone, I'm prone to depression and anxiety anyway. And so as that was happening, I was, as I was approaching 40, I, I, I was really depressed. And that's when that, that kind of crazy cause and effect thinking, you know, that magical thinking stuff starts happening where it's like, oh, I'm being punished by the universe, which is not, not, not what happens. That's not why we don't get pregnant. There's a lot of reasons why we don't get pregnant. And that's not one of them. I 100% agree. That's not scientific. I just think I've talked to a lot of women who get an abortion for one reason or another, and then condemn themselves and feel like this is comeuppance or whatever happens, right? They're joining two things that are unrelated. And it's easy to do, isn't it? Because I think when, when we first 
had access to safe and legal abortion, we were kind of on a high from that when we didn't really, you know, think that much about it. I mean, I really don't know that many people who didn't get abortions at some point because they were women who were thinking through their lives. This is what I need to do right now. And I can't do this right now. And just made these decisions. And then probably you remember more and more like Saturday mornings, you'd go to the farmer's market and there'd be people protesting abortions and then people lining up in front of the abortion clinics and, and, you know, screaming and shaming people. And and more and more, it got, it got much more difficult to ignore the fact that there was a faction. I don't know if you recall Dr. Bernard Salapian from Buffalo, New York, but he was an abortion provider and in, in Buffalo, and he was shot through his kitchen window and killed. And I was still living in Rochester at the time. So it was, you know, right next door, the city right next door to us. And according to his Wikipedia page, Dr. Salapian's murder was the climax of a series of five sniper attacks in four years in northern New York and Canada. In 1988, he was the fourth doctor in the United States to be murdered for performing abortions. His killer, James Kopp, went on the FBI 10 most wanted list and was ultimately found hiding in France. In 2001, Cop was extradited, tried, and convicted of second-degree murder in Buffalo and is currently serving a 25-to-life sentence. Cop was also convicted of federal charges and sentenced to life in prison without parole. A group called the Lambs of God took some responsibility for that, for that murder, although I, I don't think they actually were ever charged with have nobody was from that group was ever charged with doing it. But they came to Rochester and threatened another doctor, Dr. Wortman, whereupon a whole bunch of us went to Dr. Wortman's house and we, we circled the house to protect him. We had the, like, these anti-abortion people on one side of the street and then the news people were in the middle of the street and we were on the other side of the street. And I'll never forget, it was, it was so interesting because the news people really wanted a story. And you know what happens? I walked across the street and I started chatting with one of the anti-abortion people and somebody else came across the street and started talking to us. And before you knew it, we were all in the middle of the street talking. There was no news. There was no shooting. But more and more those things kind of started to happen. And, And so we really started to realize that maybe there was something to all this, you know, I I don't know. I, I think I changed my mind every few minutes about what all that means. Yeah, that's a lot. The politics around this topic is so loud. It's hard to have a real conversation. Okay. So now flash forward to your 40 and you do get pregnant. And I get pregnant. Yep. On my 40th birthday. Oh, wow. Good timing. (laughs) It was really, I mean, I, I, bought a pregnancy test because all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I haven't had my period. I, you know, I, I've been PMSing, but I, I don't have my period. And so I woke up on my 40th birthday and, and the, you know, the little pink lines happened. And, and um, so that, that was great until, until a lot of the hormones started to kick in. It wasn't, it wasn't a fabulous pregnancy. So, but hormones kick in pretty quickly. Does that mean the first trimester was hard or? The first trimester, I I was working a very 
intense job. I was working on a crisis team. It was my job to work with people with very, very severe mental illness who were very symptomatic and nobody wanted to use up the hospital beds for for psychiatry. So they created the crisis team and I was just immersed in it. I mean, I was working so, so, so hard. And so I didn't really think that much about too much. And we were buying a house so that we would have a nice house on a tree-lined street because we'd been living in a, in a, in a strange little place. So we were like, we're going to get a real house. The closest to picket fence, I think, that I ever got. And so the first trimester... It was like really exciting because everybody, you know, I had a lot of colleagues and everybody was really happy for me. And then I, I just really started to get more tired and I didn't want to admit that I wasn't going to be doing the Stairmaster on the day of my delivery date. And I think I mentioned in the um, piece that I wrote that I did know a lot of women who were having these beautifully filmed births home births, and literally expensive mascara and French lingerie. And, you know, it's like I was getting more and more ungainly. I was gaining all this weight. I was so tired. And, And I took on more and more. I was teaching a class as well as working full time and had just moved into a house and we hadn't even gotten it. The inside rooms painted and really I was going about 20 hours a day and and then my my body just said no more. And I had a a case manager who was my teammate and she said, something's very wrong. And I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm I'm fine. And she said, no, something is really wrong. And she said, you're, you're short of breath and you know, you're just not yourself. And so she, she came into my office. She locked the door behind her. She sat down, she shoved the phone over at me and she said, you're going absolutely no place until you call your OBGYN. And she, and, and she was right. I called my OBGYN and he said, well, I don't like the way this sounds. Come on over. What was holding me together was work. Like work was, work was holding me together. I mean, yeah. I had all these patients and they needed me and it was so vital and you know, you know how it is. And I went over and he said, uh, yeah, you're starting to efface. And what you experienced the other night probably was losing your mucus plug. And so I'm at seven months, right? Seven months. And he said, so you're going to go lie down and you don't get up again until I tell you, you can. And he put this like this little plastic basket up against my cervix to hold my cervix shut. Oh, wow. And, and that was that I was on bed rest. So he's, he's putting you on bed rest to prevent premature delivery. And and what you mentioned that he said, Oh, that thing that happened before was probably the mucus plug. Did you have something that happened that alarmed you? Yeah. Well, I was totally in denial about it. Like, Ooh, what's that? Well, you know, I don't know. And so here I was a healthcare professional And I was just not ready to pay attention to my own fallibility. And, and that's, you know, that's when the the postpartum stuff, the pre postpartum stuff really started to kick in because there I was lying on the couch, 
living for Geraldo Rivera. I mean, that he was just, <laughs> he was, he was my guy. And I, and I've always, <laughs> it's my dirty pleasure. I love soap operas. I, I have since I was a child with my, you know, and what would watch them with my grandmother. So there was soap operas then on all day long. And so if anybody called me while the soap operas were on to see how I was, I wouldn't answer the phone. I was really getting crazy. And then Well, it sounds pretty difficult to go from the whirlwind of all the cases in the crisis center to bed. To bed. Right. That sounds pretty dramatic. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was, it was a a very, very difficult time. And of course, I don't know how different, I mean, I, I would hope that it would be different now. I did not feel as though, even though I was part, I was, I was in a good OBGYN practice. I mean, they'd been around forever and been an artist for so long. And the reason I knew my OB guy was because his wife was an artist and they used to buy my work. So I felt a connection. I mean, it wasn't like I was completely dismissed, but I think the emotional, the emotional component of what someone like me, a woman, you know, high powered woman like me goes through when suddenly They've got to just lie down. I, I don't. I don't think that I, I was not tended to well, nor was I afterwards. But I refused to let anybody know how bad things were afterwards because I was convinced that once I told anybody how crazy I was, that that they would take my daughter away from me. Well, we'll, we'll get to that because that's totally interesting, and it is. I mean, it highlights how difficult it is to find someone's postpartum. Even even therapists and people who are trained in this field yeah. don't necessarily recognize it in, them, in themselves. So it's a really difficult thing. But why don't you take us to the birth? I guess it sounds like you were not imagining a home birth with French lingerie and a video camera. But, but what were you hoping for? <laughs> well, I actually kind of was initially. And then you know, my, my OB... GYN said, and don't you be thinking about none of those home births or nurse midwives or anything like that. Cause I had shared with him that when I went into, when I went to nursing school, I had thought about becoming a, a nurse midwife. That's a whole other story. And so he was like, that's not happening. You are going to do exactly what I tell you to do. You're going to have amniocentesis. You're going to have this. You're going to have blood glucose levels. You're going to, you're going to do, you're an elderly prima gravita and you're going to do what I tell you to do. So the birth was two weeks late because once I settled down, nothing happened. And so they actually, they actually lied to me about my water having broke. I asked them if they thought my water had broke because when the baby is lying very heavy on your bladder, you can leak urine or you wonder, did my water break? And is it slow, very slowly leaking out? So he told me, yes, that's what he thought. He thought my water had broke. So then I knew enough that the baby had to be born within a certain amount of time. And when I didn't progress labor-wise, they told me I had to have a C-section 
And I didn't want a C-section more than anything. I didn't want a C-section. Nina and I will continue our conversation next week. I do want to add that Dr. Salabian's death is tragic and shocking, and at the same time, not that surprising. In one of the articles I read about the incident, a reporter talks to Reverend Rob Schenk, a national figure in the pro-life movement at the time, who had direct conflict with Dr. Salabian. The Reverend was remorseful in public about the killing and talked about how reversing Roe would essentially be a, quote, hollow political victory. He goes on to say, quote, then we would just simply be thumping our political chests and rejoicing that we had triumphed over our opponents, end quote. And on this side of the row reversal, that is very much what it feels like to me, as a supporter of a woman's right to make critical choices about her body and someone who spends lots of time with women's stories about the massive physical and emotional challenges of pregnancy. Restrictions on this kind of healthcare seem counterproductive at best. This is one complicated choice among many that can come up in a pregnancy. To hear how Nina navigates her birth and the ways she encountered and managed postpartum depression as a psychiatric nurse and as a person, I'll air the rest of our conversation next Friday. Thanks for listening.